Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Sadly, the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss... Our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And here we are, the inglorious Trexperts. And welcome, my friends, to season four. Not one, not two, not bloody three, but season four. We are now, now I promise you, now beyond the rim of the starlight past the number of years that the original series was on. We are. And we're, 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 uh, and I promise you this is going to be more entertaining than Best of Both Worlds Part Two. We got this one figured out. We actually have a plan. It's a plan of attack. Just like so, the uh, Yeah, we have a plan, but they didn't have a plan. You, you know the story with that narration. David Icke wrote it. He thought it was like a cool thing that would be intriguing, but they yeah. never had a plan. They never knew what the plan was. Yeah. They, I mean, the whole, um, it was the, like the last telefilm. Yeah. The last telefilm they did, the plan was an attempt to explain the plan that, there was no that plan. they didn't have. Yeah, which it, it's it's There's hysterical. No plan. no plan. And that's not a criticism. I think you know. Obviously, I I love Battlestar Galactica. 
And I think they did a great job. I just think it's funny that the whole thing hinged on and they have a plan, but they have no plan. It was all hyperbole. <laughs> there was no plan. No plan. So anyway, there you we go. do. They had a marketing plan is what they had. We have a we have a plan. We have a plan to entertain you. We have a, a plan to boldly go where no one has gone before. And uh, and we're 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 back. And it's it's me. Mark A. Altman with my uh, partner in crime here, Darren Docterman, and our newest Trexpert, our newly minted Trexpert, Cousin Oliver. <laughs> you keep saying that. Why would you insult yourself like that? <laughs> I don't know. I just... You're no Cousin Oliver. You're more like Guinan. You know, you yeah. sort of pop in and out occasionally and say something wise. What's keeping you from touching? Like, you know, you're, you're, you show up for like yesterday's Enterprise and Q-Who, and then occasionally you show up for Time's Arrow. So That's it's like most of the time, he, he's more welcome. like Seven of Nine. No, he's not. No, no. There's nothing like Seven, not like Seven of Nine. Nope. No, no, not not from that shirt. Um, but I, I, I'm so glad that uh, Ashley is now um, a, a, a full-fledged track expert. We're glad to have him. Of course, uh, his hit show on Netflix, Dota Dragon's Blood, can be watched now. The second season is coming soon. And uh, you may have enjoyed his work on such shows as Black Sails, Fringe, and the movies Thor and X-Men First Class, among many others. Um, but, you know, his greatest credit, perhaps, is Trexpert. That's right. That's right. So there you go. Wow. Anyway. I am, I am so excited to be part of this fourth season. Um, now, really to prove that the third season was no fluke. If we're going to follow in the it was a good season. And, you know, we started off we started off with an episode called Scott's Brain. And it was in defense of um, Scott, the third season. Yeah, it was in defense (laughs) of the third season of the original Star Trek. And um, and it was a great way to start our third season. So even though no one else is holding us to that high level, we kind of said to ourselves, what can we do? as a fourth season premiere that's worthy of a, a season premiere. You know, this is this is where you throw a little extra money at the show. You know, it's a little bit better guest stars. We've um, doubled our budget. We've doubled our twice. Nothing is still nothing. <laughs> and uh, and we're, we're so, so we, we, we think we come up with something pretty interesting, haven't we, Darren? We're taking the same uh, track, track, uh, as uh, uh, CBS uh, uh, Paramount Plus, and we're going back to the beginning. We're going back Will to the beginning. Go to the future. That's right. We're going back to the future. Hold on a minute. Oh, I feel fine. Just fine. Yeah, you look a hundred percent better. You recommended a rest and change of pace, didn't you? Mm-hmm. I've even been home. Does that make you happy? Yeoman. Yes, sir. I thought I told you that when I'm on the bridge, I. Oh. Oh, yes, the uh, reports. Thank you. Sir, I was wondering, just curious, who would have been Eve? Yeoman, you've delivered your reports. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Eve, sir? Yes, sir. Eve, as in Adam? As in all ship's doctors, a dirty old man. What are we running here? A cadet ship number one? Are we ready or not? All decks are ready, sir. 
So uh, what we're doing is we're going to look at the original pitch, original pitch document that Gene Ronberry had for the cage. Uh, also, we have some early correspondence regarding casting uh, with pre-Joe D'Augusta casting directors. Uh, we also have um, uh, uh, his original series Bible, much of it which was excerpted in the making of uh, Star Trek, that wonderful book that was such an inspiration to so many of us right. growing up. Um, and we're going to talk about uh, the original pitch for Star Trek, how things from the Bible uh, may have um, helped uh, inform the show and others that were abandoned, which is it's really fascinating. And uh, I think uh, for, for those involved in writing and creating uh, Strange New Worlds, it probably would have been uh, wise to take a look at these original documents, which after 50, more than 55 years still provide a fascinating lens into uh, building a better Star Trek. A light and we're to shine look at the that. way, if it were. And this is going to be part of an ongoing series this season because we're going to look at the Writers and Directors Guide, not only for the original Star Trek, but The Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, and Enterprise. And uh, what was so interesting is though those were designed for um, not just professional writers, but uh, they had an open submission policy where uh, anyone who had an agent or a lawyer or was willing to sign a release could submit uh, um, scripts to the shows. And many writers who had never been uh, 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 had never sold a script were hired uh, to work on those shows. So the, the, they're particularly detailed. Also, they made great gifts at Lincoln Enterprises. So we'll talk <laughs> about that as well. Um, but today we're going to talk about uh, the original Gene Roddenberry Bible. And, and, and thank God for the season premiere, we have special guest joining us. He's a big fan of the podcast, celebrating his 100th birthday, Gene Roddenberry. Well, thank you very much, Mark. I'm really uh, glad to be here. And uh, it certainly is fun looking back and, and uh, exploring, if you will, these uh, first words that uh, brought us on this journey all this way, 55 years later. Well, I think it's really interesting because just a couple of weeks ago, we talked a lot about Jeffrey Hunter and his, his um, the impact he made as uh, Captain Pike on the original Star Trek. But uh, as many people know, the original uh, captain of the Enterprise and in, in early drafts and the early conception was supposed to be Robert April, which um, uh, became canon as far as we're concerned, in the Counter Clock Incident episode of the animated series. But Gene, you were considering a lot of people other than Jeff uh, Hunter, and uh, some of them are quite fascinating. Can you, can you share with us some of the other actors that were in contention for the role? Well, this is true. We had, uh, we had a uh, uh, interdepartment uh, communication to Kerwin Coughlin back in uh, October 14th, 1964. That's uh, quite a long time ago. Uh, even by uh, modern standards. Uh, but uh, we had quite a few uh, actors that you may recognize for, uh, uh, in mind for the role of Robert April. We had uh, Paul Manti that perhaps you remember from uh, Robinson Crusoe on Mars. We that have, was one of your uh, favorite uh, movies, wasn't it, Gene? Well, it, it certainly uh, was a good example of uh, science fiction done right, in my opinion. It There's was a great uh, Criterion Collection version of that, by the way. I don't know what that is, but uh, right, but you, you'll find out soon. Uh, we also had uh, Rod Taylor. You may remember him from uh, the Time Machine movie. 
and uh, Jack Lord, uh, a little uh, a guy named James Coburn. Who well, was, Jack Lord, uh, that, that you had seriously pursued. The problem with Jack Lord is he wanted a piece of the show. And if anybody was going to make money off Star Trek, it would it be, was Jack be you, Lord. not Jack Lord. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, we we certainly uh, steered away from those kind of uh, uh, demands. Uh, absolutely. Because uh, there isn't that much to go around when it comes to television work. So uh, uh, perhaps uh, some other names you may recognize. Uh, Leslie Nielsen. Uh, uh, Frankly, I thought he would be a little too somber and serious for the project. You like gladiator movies? Uh, well, I, I certainly enjoy some of them. I don't know what you mean by that specific question, but uh, but you were a fan of Forbidden Planet, which explains your interest in Leslie Nielsen. Absolutely, Leslie Nielsen and Earl Holliman, who uh, mm -hmm. uh, of course was the uh, cook in that uh, film. Uh, we have uh, Sterling Hayden, who was uh, uh, fresh off the. Uh, uh, the no higher list uh, from uh, Hollywood. Uh, right. we because of the HUAC investigations. Uh, and he was uh, part of um, uh, people that uh, would not testify and, and were tainted with the press by McCarthy. House Sun American Activities Committee. Um, we have uh, Steve Forrest, who uh, uh, became famous on later television series. Uh, Jason Evers, who uh, uh, guest starred in one of our uh, episodes in the uh, third season. Uh, and of course, we have uh, Jeff Hunter himself, who uh, we, uh, we liked very much. He was very much a, uh, a uh, up and coming uh, movie star. And uh, we wanted him uh, uh, on the show because he would uh, give it that uh, little extra spark of uh, excitement. Uh, several other actors that uh, later uh, guest starred on our show, Liam Sullivan, uh, Michael Forrest, Warren Stevens, Skip Holmeyer, Rhodes Reason. Uh, all of these uh, gentlemen were uh, uh, the type that we were looking for, the leading man uh, portrayal that uh, was, uh, I think, essential in the, uh, in the mixture of our TV show. I'm amazed that uh, James Coburn was in the mix. Well, he was, he was certainly uh, uh, very well uh, cast uh, later on in uh, The uh, uh, Great Escape. And, uh, of course, he, he starred in a couple uh, spy uh, movies that were more of the humorous nature. But uh, he was definitely a, a very strong uh, personality that uh, well, I think would have been interesting. Maybe, maybe a little too strong, because frankly, I don't think there would have been any episodes where the Enterprise would have had to fire phasers or photon torpedoes, because the second the Klingons or the Romulans or whoever got a load of James Coburn, like over the view screen, are you kidding me? They would just turn tail and run. He could destroy them with a look. I mean, I think, that would be a, I think that would be a fascinating show. And uh, now that you mention it, I'm sorry that we didn't get him. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, forget, forget the flying kick you know yeah james coburn knew, knew karate i mean he trained with bruce lee could you imagine it, it, it'd yeah. be like enter you know enter the dragon it'd be like enter the romulan it'd be awesome <laughs> anyway okay you, you fellas are very funny i i enjoy talking with you both he could have faced off with kukla khan okay so those were some of the people that were being discussed for Robert April, um, who had originally, I think, been James Winter, later to become Captain 
uh, Pike, and then finally, eventually, Captain James T. Kirk. And this is, of course, the uh, the Enterprise was still called the Yorktown. That's uh, correct. Of- I, I realized that the the uh, the names of the characters uh, had to be uh, very definite, and especially for the uh, captain, uh, a very sharp name. So that, that's why I went to Pike and Kirk. They're very sharp sounding names. Now, what I love uh, about the, the perspective casting of Mr. Spock is uh, the memo. Uh, you know, there's a lot of apocryphal stories in the history of um, Star Trek, but the memo sort of bears out a story that Gene, that you uh, uh, told um, Dan Madsen once that Michael Dunn had been in consideration for the role of Spock. Um, and in fact, we see in this memo that that was not an exaggeration. Michael it Dunn. Was not, it was not an exaggeration at all. He was certainly uh, in the list of uh, of uh, actors considered. Uh, I think that would have been a very fascinating uh, uh, portrayal if uh, Spock was, uh, you know, in for all intents and purposes, a little person, and uh, uh, you know, living uh, in in the world of uh, of uh, larger people and uh, feeling all the more alien. I think that would have been a fascinating uh, turn for him. Well, of course, Leonard is on the list, but uh, much to my fascination. And we'll uh, uh, we also see uh, 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 a a favorite of yours, DeForest Kelly. Sure. D. Kelly was uh, in the running. I I thought that uh, because he had a history of playing, uh, you know, more sinister roles, perhaps that uh, he could bring some of that to the character of Spock and uh, perhaps uh, uh, an attitude that, uh, well, do we trust this Vulcanian? Do we, do we uh, uh, really accept him as part of the crew and the journey that uh, brings him in completely to the, uh, to the good graces of the crew? I'm just trying to imagine how, you know, when, when Spock kind of finds his sort of the, the logical side uh, you know, in Star Trek, as we as it evolved as a show versus the cage, um, how DeForest Kelly, like I can see DeForest Kelly in the cage as Spock, sort of the more emotional out there Spock. I'm having a harder time imagining him as a green blooded Vulcan yes, uh, who doesn't have any damn feelings about that. Well, remember, D, D was a talented actor and he could have uh, he could have done any uh, sort of character that. Uh, uh, that we came up with for Spock. But uh, remember at this early point in uh, when we were developing the first, uh, the first television movie, um, the, uh, the character of Spock was not at all logical at this point. He wasn't cold. He was, he was a, a normal, uh, perhaps even more than humanly emotional character. You'd like uh, to shout about the women. Well, uh, everyone shouts about the women from time to time, believe me. Uh, but uh, remember the character of number one, the, uh, the first uh, officer of the ship uh, that uh, Majel wound up playing, um, she was the cold and uh, calculating uh, character and she had the, uh, uh, the more serious scientific mind. Uh, and uh, so that was to be developed later on the series where we got rid of number one and uh, moved some of those characteristics to Spock. What's a really interesting piece of esoterica is the other person, uh, you know, at least that was being suggested for Mr. Spock at the time was Rex Holman. And Rex Holman, of course, was the miner on Nimbus three in Star Trek five. Well, yes, um, but before that, he was one of the uh, he was uh, 
uh, one of uh, Wyatt the, Earp's, uh, the, the Earps uh, yeah. thugs, one of the Earp brothers. Yeah. And uh, he did a great job in that episode. Uh, but yeah. uh, yes, he was uh, one of the miners on Nimbus 3, and he was the, the uh, bald uh, uh, person at the beginning who said that the holes in the ground were all he had. <laughs> now, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk uh, these days, uh, rightly so, about diversity. And if you look at this, the third uh, billing uh, on the um, on the show would have belonged to a character that kind of isn't that important in the cage. But obviously, Gene had intended to be far more uh, important over the life of the series. And that was Jose Tyler. Yes, Jose Tyler was an interesting character. Uh, he was we originally called him uh, Jose Ortegas, and he was born in uh, South America. And uh, he was uh, he was sort of our idea of the. Uh, the Latin leading man, perhaps, and uh, that uh, perhaps some of the stories would, uh, you know, spin off from him being one of the more adventurous uh, characters in the on the bridge crew. But it's interesting that among the people considering, who's a very good friend of yours at the time, uh, Bruce Stern. Yes, absolutely. He uh, he had a uh, a very interesting uh, quality as an actor, and. Uh, but uh, we had uh, many other uh, considerations for actors. We had uh, Robert Brown, of course, who uh, came in at the last minute on uh, uh, that uh, not very good episode. Uh, I forget the name of it at the moment. Uh, uh, the alternative factor. The, the alternative factor, of course. Uh, it's, uh, it's funny how 55 years will uh, drain your uh, memory. Uh, but, uh, and also uh, uh, Ross Martin, who uh, later uh, co-starred on uh, The Wild Wild West and uh, Richard Jekyll. Um, all these uh, were interesting character actors for this role. And I, I, I'm not exactly sure that we wound up having uh, the correct type of actors in there for, that, for the role that I originally envisioned. But uh, I, I think that uh, it would have been an interesting test to see how it would go throughout the series. Yeah, um, interestingly, uh, for the role of Dr. Boyce, uh, who, who ultimately was played by John Hoyt, who um, uh, you know, plays more of a paternal figure that, to uh, Pike than um, McCoy was to Kirk, uh, there were some really interesting uh, uh, potential um, candidates, including Paul Stewart from Citizen Kane. Yes. Yes. And uh, of course, uh, Jim Gregory, who uh, later uh, worked on shows like uh, Barney Miller and uh, Planet of the Apes. Uh, Beneath the a, Planet of the Apes. And of course, he, he uh, guest starred on one of our uh, shows as well. Um, he had a, a very distinctive voice and a very fascinating uh, uh, manner to him. I think he would have made an excellent ship's doctor. And we, we uh, and, and, you know, for number one, it was going to be hard to beat Majel for a variety of reasons, but uh, you know Lee Lee Merriweather, who who would also come back, uh, wink of an eye, was uh, um, in in you know someone that you were looking at for that role. Absolutely, and of course, so uh, we also had uh, Jeannie Ball, who uh, uh, guest starred in the Man Trap, our first regular uh, episode. I, I just have an opinion on this that I don't think Gene would like very much. <laughs> just that. Uh, I go ahead, track spread. Yeah, uh, you know, I I feel like Lee Merriweather. I mean, look, Majel is great, 
is number one. But Lee Merriweather is so charismatic that I find it difficult to imagine that that character would not find its way into um, the second pilot and into the series. Had, had Lee Merriweather played it. Had, had Lee Merriweather played it. Well, of course, there were many reactions from the studio regarding the casting of, uh, of number one. And uh, I think that they... Some of them were number two. I think that they uh, <laughs> basically uh, uh, sort of rejected the idea of having a woman in command. Uh, it's, uh, it's very disappointing that uh, the, uh, the leaders of the network felt that way uh, because I, I had been hoping for a more uh, enlightened uh, attitude from uh, the people in charge and we just weren't getting it. And that's one of the things that we were fighting against all the time. But if it had been Lee Merriweather, they probably would have kept her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so <laughs> a yeoman cult, which was also intended to be a very important uh, role in the series. Some, some fascinating potential choices there as well. And Star Trek veterans who would later become Star Trek veterans. Yes, we had uh, Sherry Marshall, of course, who uh, was later in uh, What Are Little Girls Made Of? Uh, Jill Ireland, who was in This Side of Paradise. And uh, but we had a, a wide selection of uh, actresses for the uh, yeoman role. And uh, I think that uh, at this time, she was uh, sort of more of a uh, younger, more callow character that uh, was sort of just learning the, uh, the ropes, if you will, of Starfleet or uh, the space service, as we were calling it. And uh, I think that uh, it would have been an interesting an interesting journey for this character to go through uh, a couple different seasons and see how she would change over the, uh, over the length of the series. Yeah. And Joyce Meadows, that's, that's fascinating as well from uh, Honeymooners. Well, you're, you're thinking of Jane Meadows. Oh, I am. I'm wrong. It, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, Jane Meadows worked with Jessica von Pottermaker on that's that a very different, project. Uh, that's a very different casting uh, choice there. So I mean, I, it's a it's a combination because uh, Joyce Randolph, of course, was the other wife in uh, Honeymooners, and uh, Joyce Meadows was not in either of those shows. So uh, <laughs> to the moon, Alice. <laughs> to the moon. <laughs> Warp factor three. Which and, and the moon is in fact a window to heaven. So indeed, as we as we all know, as all us Star Trek five fans know. OK. And then obviously the iconic role of Vina, um, some fascinating choices, some really interesting what ifs. A lot of what ifs that uh, that unfortunately uh, the answer was uh, too expensive for all of them. Uh, <laughs> we had uh, Yvette Mimieu, of course, who was in the time machine. Uh, Jill St. John, who was uh, uh, a very uh, interesting uh, actress and uh, was just beginning to uh, get some roles back then. Uh, of course, the lovely and talented Anne Margaret uh, and uh, Dorothy Provine, who uh, was uh, also another fascinating uh, actress who would have uh, given the role a very, a very good uh, quality in my in my mind. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, so. Uh, Gene, I want to turn to the the pitch document, um, which you know sort of laid out um, in the wake of the cage what the um, series would be if it was picked up. This was um, a document created by you, March eleventh, nineteen sixty four, in which you set out 
your vision for the show. Can you uh, can you uh, share some of this with us? Well, let me let me start uh, from the first page and go in a little bit because I think it's uh, I think it's interesting to uh, uh, find out how we were actually pitching this uh, this story and this uh, concept uh, because uh, obviously this is the one that we brought to CBS first and they uh, ripped off several of the uh, ideas in there. Uh, in my opinion. Uh, but let me tell you uh, how it goes. Uh, this is Star Trek created by Gene Roddenberry. Uh, first draft, March 11, 1964. Star Trek is a one-hour dramatic television series, action, adventure, science fiction. The first such concept with strong central lead characters plus other continuing regulars. And while maintaining a familiar central location and regular cast explores an anthology-like range of exciting human experiences. For example, as varied as, and I give some examples of episodes that we might see. Uh, the first one is The Next Cage, the desperation of our series lead caged and on exhibition like an animal then offered a mate. That of course became the cage uh, script. The next one is The Day Charlie Became God, the accidental occurrence of infinite power to do all things in the hands of a very finite man. The next is President Capone, a parallel world Chicago 10 years after Al Capone won and imposed gangland statutes upon the nation. That of course- Like living in Texas. <laughs> hey now. That of, that of course became our uh, uh, piece of the action episode. Uh, the next one is to skin a Tyrannosaurus a modern man reduced to a sling and club in a world 1 million BC. Uh, no wonder Irwin Allen stole hand. this. <laughs> I think that that would have been quite expensive on our, on our budget as we, uh, as we went along. Next, uh, the women duplicating, <laughs> duplicating a page from the old West, hanky panky aboard with a cargo of women destined for a far off colony. This, of course, which is interesting. Much, much women. Much women, yeah. But, which once again shows this is really less about space hookers than about mail order brides, which was kind of a staple of the Western. Absolutely. A, a lot of these had very similar structure to uh, the familiar episodes of uh, Westerns that were so popular at the time. And of course, uh, this last one here the coming alien people in an alien society but something disturbingly familiar about the quiet dignity of one who is being condemned to crucifixion. I'll let you, uh, you know, read into that, whatever you'd like, but I think it's pretty, <laughs> it's pretty obvious what we're thinking about there. <laughs> and then Gene, you go on to talk about uh, how uh, Star Trek offers an almost infinite number of stories uh, based on uh, the vastness of the universe and provide an equation uh, as to how astronomers uh, can express it uh, in terms of how many galaxies and worlds there could be out there in the universe. And it's only a fraction of those many stories that you can tell. Absolutely. I mean, uh, it's funny how, how uh, quickly we ran out of stories from the millions of worlds that are <laughs> supposedly out there. But, uh, uh, you know, they, they somehow start sounding uh, incredibly familiar uh, uh, within the within the first couple of years, um, but the 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 language of television puts it like this: Star Trek is a wagon train concept. 
built around characters who travel to worlds similar to our own and meet the action adventure drama which becomes our stories. Their transportation is the cruiser SS Yorktown performing a well-defined and long-range exploration science security mission which helps create our format. The time is somewhere in the future. It could be 1995 or maybe even 2995. In other words, close enough to our own time for our continuing characters to be fully identifiable as people like us, but far enough into the future for galaxy travel to be thoroughly established, happily eliminating the need to encumber our stories with tiresome scientific explanation, which incidentally happened in the two pages before here, uh, the tiresome. And, and then he goes on at great length to describe parallel words, worlds concept, the, you know, what would become the Hodgkin's law of parallel planetary development, which is a way of justifying the use of studio backlots uh, to portray a variety of planets. Actually, I'm very, I'm very pleased with this, bit of, uh, with this bit of skullduggery on my part uh, to have a scientific explanation for the fact that we can use any of the backlot uh, sets that we want and explain that it's only because uh, the theory of parallel worlds. Let me read this to you. The parallel worlds concept is the key to the Star Trek format. It means simply that our stories deal with plant and animal life, plus people, quite similar to that on Earth. Social evolution will also have interesting points of similarity with ours. There will be differences, of course, ranging from the subtle to the boldly dramatic, out of which come much of our color and excitement. And of course, none of this prevents an occasional far out tale thrown in for surprise and change of pace. Uh, budget, far out, man. Budget, budget permitting. Uh, the parallel worlds concept makes production practical by permitting action adventure science fiction that a practical budget figure via the use of available earth casting sets, locations, costuming, and so on. As important and perhaps even more so in many ways to the parallel worlds concept tends to keep even the most imaginative stories within the general audience's frame of reference through such recognizable and identifiable casting, sets, and costuming. Can we talk about this for a second? Here's what I find fascinating about this document. Um, yeah. And you have to step back from it. And this is, I think, you know, something that we can all relate to um, because we live inside of this world. But what a selling document it is. Because number one, you know, my takeaways from this, if I'm sitting there and I'm an executive, are okay, so there are home sets, and that's the Yorktown. Yeah. Um, and he's telling us that, uh, that there are a number of stories that can sustain the concept, and here's how we're going to do it. But he's it's also not, it's not only a pitch, it's reassurance that the yeah, budget is going to go crazy. That's right. It's like, yes, it is, in fact, producible. Yeah. Um, and you can, in fact, get episodes out of it. And the thing that people have to remember, um, especially the kids today, is that back then, man, like, you know, you weren't talking about like, hey, it's a new eight episode series on Netflix. See you next year. It's right. like, no, man, like you have to sustain like upwards of like 30 episodes a year, sometimes more. Yeah. And a lot of people suspect and it's been articulated that NBC uh, selected the cage of the five or six story uh, um, nuggets that they were pitched because they felt it was the most complex and the most difficult to do. Right. Because, you know, Gene and by extension, Herb Solo 
and um, and um, uh, God, Oscar Katz, you know, had really sold uh, NBC on this idea. It's producible. We can do it for a price. You're going to pay us this deficit fee, this fee, this license fee. And then Desilu is going to deficit the show, which is the difference between the cost of the episode and what the network pays. And, and we can pull it off because, you know, no network wants to be in a situation where they, they pay for a show and then the production company can't pay it off because they can't afford it yeah. or come back to them for breakage. You know, so they wanted to see that they could actually pull it off. So they, they, they picked the most ambitious episode, which was clearly the gauge, because even at that point, Gene was already pitching what would become the Omega Glory, what would become Mud's Women what would become where no man has gone before much, much easier episodes to produce. And it's no wonder, you know, a lot of people feel that one of the reasons they asked for a second pilot was less because of this whole idea that it was too cerebral, um, but more to see if they could pull it off again, because, um, uh, because the cage shot, you know, an an extraordinary number of days uh, for that. I don't remember the exact count, but at the time, you know, television didn't have that many, right. you know, shooting days. So they wanted to see them do it on a, on a, on a more uh, a regular TV schedule. Yeah. And, and, and that was part of it was sort of proving also, you got to remember Desilu was not a major studio like Warner brothers or, um, you know, uh, Columbia or screen, yeah, screen jams at the time. Like uh, so they, 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 only, you know, had, they, they only mostly had done, they had only had a couple shows, mostly uh, sitcoms. Yeah. So you know, the fact had, that there was whatever Lucy was doing at the time, and they had uh, My Favorite Martian, basically. You know, and they'd done The Untouchables, but had they done The Untouchables? But, they, but you know, they, I don't think it was. But they, they did the Mission Impossible concurrent with Star Trek. So right. they hadn't really proven themselves in the, in the dramatic space. Right, exactly. I also kind of find it interesting, and this is just maybe a, a sign of the of the time, right? That, you know, we're sitting here, we're talking about um, the the network selecting, um, you know, the cage as the pilot, which is just so, it's just not how it happens today. Now, you know, it's not only are you pitching, like, here's like your first season, like you, you pitch your pilot. In fact, you know, even 20 years ago, you were saying like, this is the pilot episode. This is what it's going to be. And the fact that that's not an issue, right? It's um, it's such a, a different way of approaching the sale of television um, than how we do it now. It's uh, it's almost it's it's kind of an interesting archive of kind of how writers and producers had to think fifty five years ago. Oh, well, I think absolutely. It's, it's amazing that uh, you know that due to the the superb production quality of the cage. Um, it uh, it convinced some of the uh, you know some of the studio executives. It it, uh, it it convinced them the network. I mean uh, that it 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 made them think that they were out in space, and they liked that feeling and they thought it, it was a uh, a really good idea for a show. They just weren't you know weren't sure about the whole format as it was and the casting and everything. And it was such an inspired choice uh, or uh, solution by Gene to pitch the whole idea of parallel planetary development mm-hmm. as much yeah. as we joke about it. I mean, I can tell you like when we were doing, you know, Pandora, you know, I had access to, 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 you know, the back lot and I'm like, I'm never using the Western town. I'm never using the, the, you know, the small town 
uh, a street and uh, you know all this stuff and of course i ended up using them all of course. because you had to because that's what you had access to on the back lot and you had to find a clever way to use them and i think gene was really brilliant in the way that he used um 40 acres which was the culver city uh desilu lot and the way that he used uh, um the back lot um over on melrose and and gower right yeah no he he was he was a smart tv producer absolutely and it was those reasons that actually got Star Trek made. And it, uh, it, it, you know, made it possible for him to sort of get more creative in other aspects. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. And you know, people forget at this time, not only did he do Star Trek, but, you know, other people were asking him, like Sam Peoples asked him to come in and, you know, kind of oversee production on his pilot. And, you know, he did Long Con of April Savage right around then when he was waiting to hear about the cage. And, he, you know, he was writing later on, he would be writing the Tarzan pilot. So, I mean, uh, you know, certainly NBC was concerned about Roddenberry because he had gone over on the lieutenant and he also, um, you know, antagonized the network and antagonized the army. You know, with his attitude, uh, with, with the way you know, when, uh, I can't, you know, when they needed access to Camp Pendleton, and uh, so you know, he didn't quote unquote work and play well with others as far as the the studio was, the network was concerned. But obviously, they liked the Star Trek premise uh, enough, and 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 saw the potential in it to want to work with him, even though they would admit that their 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 experience with Gene previously was not the best one from their perspective and and before someone from our audience uh calls you on it uh the lieutenant the was, was about the marines not the army but, uh yeah it's by the marines that's right yes. camp pendleton at the marines yeah. yes <laughs> just keeping you out of trouble ah yes okay <laughs> so yeah i mean the, they you know he gives specifics on the yorktown and and describes it as you know this is our home base so our standing sets are always there and we can always tell a story within those walls if we get into a, a position of uh, having to. And that it's which was not quite a, a bit, <laughs> which was quite a bit. But, uh, you know, to be fair, uh, if for a uh, for standing sets, it's an interesting place to be still. Absolutely. And that was part of the push pull all along because the, the network, which, you know, had locked in what they were spending per episode was always pushing for more planet stories. And of course, Desilu and Gene were always pushing back because they couldn't afford it. You know, they couldn't afford to keep building planets and go to planets and certainly go to locations. I mean, you look at the third season, they blew all their money, you know, going to the reservoir to shoot Paradise Syndrome, you know? And 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 uh, it was expensive to go on location, not just in terms of money, but in terms of time and lost time. And particularly given the, the, the schedule of the show, so, um, you know, setting so much. And then you, you, if you look at like subsequent series like Next Generation, I don't remember what the ratio was, but so many episodes that are completely set on the ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's the day to day problem of producing a TV show. You can't you can't spend a lot of money on new planets every week. You just can't. Uh, and even when you do they tend to look very similar to each other. Um, so it's, uh, it's, just, it's just having to do a new episode each week is very restrictive in terms of creativity and budget. Yeah, but, you know, and again, that's what we point to, particularly when it comes to the original Star Trek. It was a show about ideas. 
So even when you couldn't show the worlds or if the different alien worlds all looked the same, um, it was about characters and it was about ideas and it was about philosophy. And that's why, you know, 55 years later, we're still watching it unless you only have Netflix and then you can't watch it because it's not on Netflix anymore and you're too cheap to buy the Blu-rays. But you should buy the Blu-rays. Yeah. You should buy should everything buy that is offered. Yes, you should. Buy all, all that is buy all, those buy all the things. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so the, the, the principal character in, in this version of the pitch deck um, is uh, Robert April, Captain Robert April. What can you tell us, Gene, about your conception of the skipper? Well, you see, the skipper is about 34. He's an academy graduate, rank of captain, clearly the leading man and central character. This role is designated for an actor of top repute and ability. A shorthand sketch of Robert April might be a, a space-age Captain Horatio Hornblower, lean and capable both mentally and physically. Captain April be, will be the focus of many stories, and still others he may lead us into the introduction of the guest star around who that story centers. A colorfully complex personality, he is capable of action and decision, which can verge on the heroic and at the same time lives a continual battle with self-doubt and the loneliness of command. As with similar men in the past, Drake, Cook, Bougainville, and Scott, his primary weakness is a predilection to action over administration, a temptation to take the greatest risks onto himself. But unlike most early explorers, he has an almost compulsive compassion for the plight of others, alien as well as human, and must continually fight the temptation to risk many to save one. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Or That's the right. One. Until Star Trek Three, where it's all ignored and blown oh, up. Then you're alive because <laughs> of a failure of logic. <laughs> yes. When are we going to do commentary on Star Trek Three? Oh. Soon, <laughs> Quite soon. <laughs> Are, are we allowed to do an episode about the new 4K set or can we not talk about that because since you're involved in... Um, uh, I'd, the... I'd rather we save that till uh, later on next year. Okay, sounds if good. That's okay. When you can talk about I, the secret I'd like to be very. I'd like to be very specific about things and I'm afraid I can't be yet. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I, I will tell people that I did get the, um, the, the, the 4K set um, and uh, if nothing else... The transfers are, are, are vastly improved over the old Blu-ray transfers. So if you're thinking of buying it, I'm Do it. speaking for myself. I encourage you to purchase it. Mine are on order and they're coming on Tuesday. On Tuesday. 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 <laughs> okay. <laughs> I haven't bothered to calculate. <laughs> let, let, let's <laughs> we call it a shrunk. Um <laughs> <laughs> the executive officer. Uh, this is number one, uh, who is going to be an important character in the new uh, Paramount Plus TV show, Strange New Worlds, played by Rebecca Romain Stamos. I get no, uh, she's not Rebecca Romain Stamos. And it's um, funny. And she is not in the army, she's in the Marines. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's funny because, of course, I, I spent a lot of time with her and Jerry, you know, when we were doing librarians. And yeah. I, yeah, I, I, and I, <laughs> I don't know why I said Rebecca Romain's table. Rebecca Romain. So, yeah, that's easy. Go. Just drop the yeah. table. 
There you go. Just drop it. Forget about it. Drop it. <laughs> it's like in the office where 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 Michael Scott keeps calling her uh, Jan, uh, uh, calling Jan. Uh, <laughs> what, was, what was her name? Never mind. Okay. Uh, yes. Remember with Jan? Jan we had gotten divorced. Yeah, she had a hyphenate Michael, name, and he yeah, dropped yeah. It. And, yes. then, and then Michael kept calling her by the name, and she's no, just 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 just. <laughs> anyway, I don't okay. remember the character name, but okay. uh, that's that's on the office uh, experts. Uh, the, the office, the, the office ladies. No, yes. no, they have a they have a podcast. Oh, the office I listen ladies. To the office ladies all the time. They're great. With Jenna that's Fisher cool. and uh, yes, and uh, yeah, and and apparently, yeah, I know a lot of people love that podcast. And now I think um, uh, Rob Rob McNeil and Garrett Wong are doing the same thing for. Um, uh, the voyage for Voyager, they're doing uh, like uh, a show where they talk about their experience. Talking about the office, they're yeah, talking about the office, the, the USS <laughs> Voyager. But you know, I got to imagine it's difficult, um, because you know, with the office, the ensemble was pretty much involved in every episode, right. But on Star Trek, on the, the shows, you know, if you could basically stand in the background and have one line and not really do anything in an episode, well, so wasn't you know, that if you're not one of the in Las three, Vegas with. With uh, they were saying about Shatner talking about feuds oh, yeah. with day, people, day players. Yeah, day players. I never talked to him. Fifty yeah. years later, oh. it's. <laughs> you mean when uh, Bill was talking about George? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Why don't we? Why don't we talk about let's the executive officer? On the... <laughs> let's get. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's <laughs> talk about the executive officer. Now back to the executive officer. Already in progress. Now the executive officer is never referred to as anything but number one. This officer is female. Huh? Amazing. <laughs> Say the magic oh. word. The duck comes down. A ship in trouble making a forced landing, sir. That's it. No other message. I have a fix. It comes from the Talos Star Group. We've no ships or Earth colonies that far out. Their call letters check with a survey expedition. SS Columbia. Disappeared in that region approximately 18 years ago. It would take that long for a radio beam to travel from there to here. Records show the tallest group has never been explored. Solar system similar to Earth, 11 planets. Number four seems to be class M. Oxygen atmosphere. And they could still be alive, even after 18 years. If they survived the crash. We aren't going to go, to be certain. Not without any indication of survivors, no. Continue on to the Vega colony and take care of our own sick and injured first. We have the helm. Maintain present course. Yes, sir. Almost mysteriously female, in fact. Slim and dark in a Nile Valley way. Age uncertain. One of those women who will always look the same between years 20 to 50. This is a science fiction show, by the way. (laughs) An extraordinarily efficient officer, number one, enjoys playing it expressionless, cool. It's probably Robert April's superior in detailed knowledge of the multiple equipment systems, departments, and crew members aboard the vessel. When Captain April leaves the craft, number one moves up to acting commander. Can I just say something very important? It was Jan Levinson Gould. For yes. those who are wondering at home, yes, and, 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 and drop the Gould. So it's no <laughs> Rebecca Romaine Stamos, and it's no Jan Levinson Gould. Rebecca just Jan Levinson. Gould. No Gould. No Forget Gould. the Gould. And no Lieutenant Yar. 
Oh my God. When are we going to do commentary on, we can't on code of honor. (laughs) My God, (laughs) just (laughs) what is there to say other than why did this happen? I mean, that that, that would be our commentary. It would be a constant repeating of the word. Why? 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 I don't understand. (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why? Okay. The Navigator. Let's talk about the Navigator because this is an interesting character. I think what's so interesting about it, it is one of the characters that really didn't make the jump to... um, what would become the Star Trek that we know and love. Right. And, and, and I think probably one of the more interesting characters that we never saw, other than obviously in the cage. Can you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about this character, Gene? I, I certainly can. I, I mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but I'll, I'll read the paragraph here. Jose Ortega, born in South America, is tall, handsome, about 25, and brilliant, but still in the process of maturing. He is full of both humor and Latin temperament. Uh, think of a, uh, uh, a, uh, a young Cesar Romero. Uh, he fights a... <laughs> I ask, with or without uh, mustache. <laughs> he fights a perpetual and highly personal battle with his instruments and calculators, suspecting that space and probably God too are engaged in a giant conspiracy to make his professional and personal life as difficult and uncomfortable as possible. Jose is painfully aware of the historical repute of Latins as lovers and is in danger of failing this ambition on a cosmic scale. That's a little twist on what we expect from that character. Just a little bit. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, <coughs> it's interesting because I guess until Roxanne Biggs Dawson's uh, character, there really wasn't a Latina or Latino or Latinx character. On, yeah, uh, it's on. it's interesting, but I think this was very forward thinking, and and it mm-hmm. would have been great if they'd actually followed through on it. Yeah, but I they, agree. They kind of didn't. They didn't cast a Latin actor in it. By the uh, way, is she still Roxanne Biggs Dawson, or is there I don't no know. Or is she, she just Roxanne Dawson? Dawson? I think she might she just be Roxanne Dawson. Well, we know Roxanne. that she dropped the Klingon. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> we'll get back Klingon. to you on that. <laughs> but yeah, so this is it's interesting because Jose Ortega was an interest. You know, I, I don't think there's any plans to include him in the Strange New Worlds, which which is a shame because this is a character that Gene created, who we really never saw anything done with. Other and of than course, by few- the time by the time the Cage was written, uh, the name had changed to slightly more uh, you know Western uh, Americanized uh, Jose Tyler. Um, yeah. Yeah. Which you know sort of uh, sort of takes the the uh, I don't know the edge off. I don't know. I, I I don't I don't think that that I don't think that was a good idea. I thought they should have you mm-hmm. know gone full full Latin with this character because it would have yeah. been fascinating and great. It may simply be studying the captain to find out how Earth people are put together, or it could be something more. Then why aren't we doing anything? Now, that entry may have stood up against hand lasers, but we can transmit the ship's power against it, enough to blast half a continent. Look, brains three times the size of ours. If we start buzzing about down there, we're liable to find their mental power is so great, they could reach out and swap this ship as though it were a fly. It's Captain Pike they've got. He needs help, and he probably needs it fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know who would have been amazing? Who? 
Ricardo, Ricardo Montalban. Montalban. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. He, he, yeah, How yeah. The cool problem is, could you imagine <laughs> Jeff Hunter and Ricardo Montalban? Ricardo Montalban, you just want him to be the star because he's so much more charismatic than Jeffrey Hunter. Well, that's true. That's true. But you know because what? Because he's in danger of failing this ambition on a cosmic scale. Honestly, how fascinating would that have been if the rewrite after The Cage for Star Trek had been, you know, Jose, Jose Ortegas as captain, and they would cast uh, unbelievable. It would have been great. It would have been great. And, and then they could have cast as Spock in the lead. Oh yeah. my God! This is the greatest Star Trek "What If" of all time. Michael Dunn as Spock. Yeah. Uh, 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 Ricardo, Ricardo Montalban as, as Jose Ortega's captain. Um, um, and, and then who? Who? Jack Lord is as as uh, as a uh, Robert April or well, who? Who do you think? No, there's no Robert. James Gilbert. No, there's no. There's April. no Robert April. Jose okay, Ortega so is the captain. Oh, he's the captain. He's the captain. Right. Oh, I love it. Captain. I'm the captain now. Um, but i i think that would have been fascinating and you know uh what a what a great opportunity that would have been to you know go all out with with this you know you know give it a uh, a wide representational casting i think that would have been great and you know james gregory as the ship's doctor you can't go wrong he would have been great. He would have been great. He's so much more charismatic than John Hoyt. I like John Hoyt. Don't get I me like wrong. I like John Hoyt a lot. And he's been in but, a lot know, of uh, wonderful productions. Boys here. Drop by my cabin, doctor. What's that? I don't say there's anything wrong with me. I understand we uh, picked up a distress signal. That's right. Unless we get anything more positive on it, it seems to me the condition of our own crew takes precedent. I'd like to log the ship's doctor's opinion, too. Oh, I concur with yours, definitely. No good. I'm glad you do. We're going to stop first at the Vega colony and replace anybody who needs hospitalization. And also, the devil are you putting in there, Ice? Who wants a warm martini? What makes you think I need one? Sometimes, a man will tell his bartender things he'll never tell his doctor. What's been on your mind, Chris? The fight on Rigel 7? Shouldn't it be? My own yeoman and two others dead, seven injured. Was there anything you personally could have done to prevent it? Oh, I should have smelled trouble when I saw the swords in the armor. Instead of that, I let myself get trapped in that deserted fortress and attacked by one of their warriors. Chris, you set standards for yourself no one could meet. You treat everyone on board like a human being except yourself. Well, now you're tired and you... You bet I'm tired. You bet. I'm tired of being responsible for 203 lives and... I'm tired of deciding which mission is too risky and which isn't, and who's going on the landing party and who doesn't, and who lives, and who dies. Oh, I've, I've had it, Phil. To the point of finally taking my advice, arrest leave. 
to the point of considering resigning. And do what? Well, for one thing, go home. Nice little town with 50 miles of parkland around it. Remember I told you I had two horses and we used to take some food and ride out all day? Well, that sounds exciting. You ride out with a picnic lunch every day. I said that's one place I might go. Going to business on regulars or in the Orion colony. You, an Orion trader, dealing in green animal women slaves? But the point is that this isn't the only life available. There's a whole galaxy of things to choose from. Not for you. A man either lives life as it happens to him, meets it head on and licks it, or he turns his back on it and starts to wither away. Now you're beginning to talk like a doctor, bartender. Take your choice. We both get the same two kinds of customers. The living and the dying. But, but, it's, kind uh, of but, I, but it's kind of boring, right? But James Gre- Gregory yeah. would have been... He, he mean, just he, has something... He brings in like 10 times the acerbicness as uh, McCoy, you know? Well, look at him in Manchurian Candidate. Absolutely. I mean, oh, my yeah. God. He's so yeah. fantastic um wow this is interesting so who do you cast <laughs> as number one lee merriweather lee merriweather it's like that's a no-brainer yeah. yeah. okay okay so that's great jill ireland well clearly you weren't sleeping with Rachel ashley uh, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not tonight were you not. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> no but lee, lee merriweather would have been would have been great um and then uh so who who haven't we cast here? Who have we done alternative casting on? Uh, hmm. Uh, Colt. I know that that was Jill. Oh, Colt. Let's yeah, talk yeah. about Colt. Oh, oh wait, 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 wait. And Margaret? No. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. I think the thing there is you can't you can't cast the bombshell. No, and Margaret was going to no, be. No, you can't. So, because the so thing is, we want Jill a Ireland. show. That's more you know, respectful. It's more yeah. diverse, and so like you want somebody who's like really projects competence and is not. She can be yeah. sexy, but not just a sex part. Like Grace, like Anne Margaret, like Grace Lee Whitney what? actually was. Like Grace Lee Whitney actually was absolutely. But yeah. uh, of the people that were being suggested by yeah. casting, who I was think uh, Bill Ireland would have been great. Yeah, Bill Ireland would have been fantastic, and also. Uh, 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 Although it's so funny, I don't. Did you guys ever watch Arrested Development? I have not. No. Oh, okay. Well, there's an episode of Arrested Development where um, Job finds out that uh, he thinks some this person on the show is, uh, is sleeping with uh, his girlfriend, and uh, he goes to fight them. So, could you imagine Charles Bronson showing up uh, on the oh, set Bronson. because he thinks somebody is sleeping with Jill Ireland? That would have oh been amazing. Oh my! It's like it's like uh, you know when um, Frank Sinatra shows up on the set of uh, Rosemary's Baby and demands that they uh, uh, release um, <laughs> Mia Farrow from her contract right. so she can come shoot the movie well, with him. The, the great thing would have been to uh, hide in one of the Jeffries tubes because he's not going to climb up there after you because he's scared of it collapsing. <laughs> he's claustrophobic. <laughs> <laughs> The Tunnel King. Okay, so, um, <laughs> oh my God. Now, now, 
now there is, they also have, uh, you know, descriptions. Uh, Gene has descriptions of the, the first lieutenant, the, the captain's right-hand man. Right. Um, the, um, and his name is Mr. Spock. His name is Spock. Your name is Spock. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's talk about that. The captain's right-hand man, the working level commander of all the ship's functions from manning the bridge to supervising the lowliest scrub detail. His name is Mr. Spock, and the first view of him can be almost frightening. A face so heavy-lidded and satanic, you might almost expect him to have a forked tail. Uh, maybe and you wonder why like, the network said he was too devilish. Right. I mean, he's, he's, he's leading into it he's, right here. He's loading the dice against him. He's probably half Martian. He has a slightly reddish complexion and semi-pointed ears. I don't know how you can have semi-pointed ears. <laughs> either. It's kind of like he, he's a, he is semi-pregnant for the duration of the show. Uh, he has, uh, uh, strangely, Mr. Spock's quiet temperament is in dramatic contrast to his satanic look. Of all the crew aboard, he is the nearest to Captain April's equal, physically and emotionally, as a commander of men. His primary weakness is an almost cat-like curiosity over anything the slightest alien. You can defeat him easily by shining a laser pointer on the right. floor and uh, <laughs> insatiable how, curiosity. How great would Michael Dunn have been? Amazing. Totally. Amazing. I mean, that would have been so unlike anything we'd seen before. Absolutely. Anything. Especially if they'd given him a ball of yarn. I mean, it's it's so funny when you think about how groundbreaking Star Trek was and how much more groundbreaking it could have it even could been. Have been. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they just didn't have the guts. <laughs> well, I mean, what they pulled off was uh, incredible. Um, so now the Captain's Yeoman uh, cult. Uh, tell us, tell us what you had in mind for that. Well, except for problems in naval parlance, cult would be called yo woman. Uh, hey, yo woman. Yo woman. <laughs> yo woman. And with a shape even a uniform could not hide. I wrote that part. Yo woman. Yes, sir. I thought I told you that when I'm on the bridge, I accept. But you've wanted the reports by 0500. It's 0500 now, sir. Oh, I, I see. Thank you. She's replacing your former yeoman, sir. Now, she does a good job, all right. It's just that I can't get used to having a woman on the bridge. No offense, Lieutenant. You're different, of course. Uh, <laughs> she serves as Robert April's secretary, reporter, bookkeeper, and undoubtedly wishes she could also serve him in more personal departments, if you know what I mean. Uh, she is not what do you dumb. Mean, Gene? Uh, she is not dumb. She is very female, disturbingly so. <laughs> Probably but, the but worst much like sentence I in this document. Much like I described number one, disturbingly. W women, <laughs> women would disturb me, and then they would wind up in scripts. I love the fact that we have to say she is not dumb. Like, I mean, yeah. can't we just assume if she's serving on the ship that she's, she's very smart and well-educated? Well, educated? well um, in modern Star Trek, that's not necessarily the case. So yeah, that's, that's all true. I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah. She is not emotional. She does not cry on the bridge when bad things happen. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. She is not um, galactically stupid. Yeah. 
And then I love the fact that you go into Gene into it's almost like the the blueprints of technical manual where you play it as sort of on a meta level, you know, where the ne- the rest of it is excerpted from orders to Captain Robert April, and it plays like this is actually the orders that Starfleet or at the time it would be the Earth Space Probe Agency, you know, gave to uh, the Enterprise to begin its mission. And it lists all the different kinds of missions the Enterprise could be on. What are those, Gene? Well, I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of you know very specific things talking about the uh, gross 190,000 tons of the cruiser class. I'm not going to go through that. I'm, no, I'm, no, I'm just asking. I, what I'm going to tell you number about six. That, that's what I was going to do. You will conduct this patrol to accomplish primarily a Earth security via exploration of intelligence and social systems capable of a galaxial treat. No threat. <laughs> oh, or, 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 you know what? I prefer to think if, of it as a galaxial treat. Yeah, me too. Because you want to find that out as well. It's like, what if there are treats out there, people? Treats only this ship can handle. Disturbingly so. Disturbingly so. <laughs> uh, B reads scientific investigation to add to the Earth's body of knowledge of life forms and social systems. And C any required assistance to the several Earth colonies in this quadrant and the enforcement of appropriate statutes affecting such federated commerce, vessels, and traders as you might contact in the course of your mission. So it reads very much like, uh, like orders for a uh, you know, uh, 18th century sailing vessel. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it, there, there is very much that uh, hornblower sort of twist to this. And that that is the nature of their mission. They're not completely a warship, but they can be if they need be. Um, yeah. But they are out there as basically police officers, uh, you know, protecting the safety of Earth people out in colonies and uh, any any threats, wide galactic threats to that would affect the Earth or the uh, USPA. United yeah. Earth Space Probe Agency. No, absolutely. And then he wisely addresses a lot of the issues we were talking about earlier, some of the format and budget considerations where he talks about uh, the sets they're going to build, right. um, the stages, uh, uh, the cruiser itself, the Yorktown standing set, which will be amortized over the life of the series. That basically means that the cost of building those sets are divided among all the episodes produced. So right. the more episodes you have, the cheaper it is. For economy, the basic set is designed so that all cabins, wardrobe, wardrooms, and the passage can be redressed and doubled, or in some cases tripled and quadrupled. Mm-hmm. And then, but here, interestingly, it talks about landings. The cruiser will stay in space orbit, will rarely land on a planet. Landings are made with a small and transportable recon rocket vehicle. This is before he came with the transporter. Generally, audience view of sightings and landing will be that of control crew. Um, and then uh, on a telescreen, and they're talking about using stock footage to show the, the landing of the shuttlecraft. Also for economy, ship miniaturization footage will be planned for maximum use, also amortized over the life of the series. That, that just means stock footage of the, of the model of the ship. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's a very tiny ship. It's like Stonehenge. <laughs> it's miniaturization. It's uh, not uh, 10 feet, but 10 inches. Um, I, I, like, about- I like later in page 12. I mean, yeah, we go through all, all those considerations we were talking about before, you know, maintaining uh, 
the casting to be it's regular humans that we mostly see. Sometimes we have an alien, but it's rare, or at least that's what he's telling the telling the network. Um, and uh, you know, weaponry, language, and costume are all familiar to normal audiences. And so I love he says crew uniforms are crew uniforms are naval in general yeah. appearance, attractively simplified and utilitarian. Again, surprise variations are possible here too. Well, what's really different and smart about that is that if you think about what science fiction looked like at the time, right? It was just kind of, it was very, it was lost in space, man. It was like, it just wasn't the way that we understand it now. There was something very groundbreaking about the costumes in Star Trek because it was utilitarian, because they felt like uniforms, because it didn't feel like we were dressed up for space. Right. It just felt like these were people who were doing a job, which was a really fascinating way to approach that. And yeah. it's amazing yeah. the, the line between a military uniform, which is something that you might see in Forbidden Planet, let's say, and mm -hmm. these more casual uniforms, but still they had the trappings of a military uniform with rank uh, and the insignia and all of that. Uh, but they were all, uh, you know, visually related to each other. Everyone, you know, a, a, when you see a landing party beam down, you can tell they're all from the same ship. And uh, it's very interesting how they took the they took the campiness out of that. You know, the campiness mm -hmm. of having a, uh, you know, really uh, highly structured uniform and yeah. sort of eased up on that. But I do think that's also the naval aspect of it and uh, uh, of the uniform is also a reason why you find most people prefer Bob Fletcher's Star Trek II designs to that of the quote unquote pajamas from Star Trek The Motion Picture, because they have a kind of naval uniform feel as opposed to the motion picture, which feels, you know, more casual and less traditional. Well, that's, that's the whole, that's the whole, um, you know, hornblower peacoat kind of thing, you know, yes. with a, a tightly bound uh, tunic that, uh, you know, you would wear on deck in bad weather, uh, yeah. but it's completely unreasonable inside a starship. And yet, I, you know, I, it's, it's a successful look, you know, in those films. Well, of course it is. It's successful right. because they didn't want it's to well spend done. money to change them later. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's successful. Um, well, sorry, go ahead. I don't know. I, I've just never been a fan of those uh, Trek 2. Oh, you know, see, I've always, I've always loved And you them. never will. Never will. I never will. I, I can never forgive them for the death of my fandom. Oh, by the way, <laughs> uh, so um, uh, our, our previous guest, a good friend of the podcast, Steve Asbell, uh, reached out to me. He said he wants to debate you on the podcast on Star Trek Six. Do you debate accept the challenge? Me. You, accept, yes, you. I accept the challenge. Of course I accept. He accepts oh. the challenge. The Kula Cafe. What? <laughs> the Kula Cafe. Who gets the Lerpa and who gets the Anwu? That's my the, the, question. The, the, wow. the, 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 yes, that. The, 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 Ah, anyway, he accepts the challenge. Absolutely. Yeah, the, bring, uh, him. bring him on. Yeah, the, uh, I prefer a straight fight to all this sneaking around. Okay, wrong show. Okay, <laughs> so uh, we kind of I want to wrap up because he talks about as with Gunsmoke's Dodge City, Kildare's Blair General Hospital, we may never get around to exploring every cabin, department, 
and cranny of our cruiser. The point cranny being, it is, a, <laughs> it is a whole, I say cranny. that three times fast. It is a whole community in which we can anytime take our camera down a passageway and find a guest star or it's a secondary character, scientist, specialist, ordinary airman, passenger, oh, stowaway. Who can propel <laughs> us into a story. So that's really interesting. Now, the, 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 the thing I want to end on is he has a bunch of log lines for yeah. episodes. I would love it if each of us could pick a log line from this array of uh, of episodes. Now, I would let's skip any that actually became Star Trek episodes, but um, there well, there are a bunch. I'd actually, I'd actually like to do one that has the name of one of our Star Trek episodes, but the description of it is completely different, and it is okay. actually red, uh, redolent of another episode that they actually did. Um, I'm going to do the Man Trap. Okay, fantastic. Tell us about it. Which tell is, us, Jim. I, tell him. I'm going to I'm going to read it like Darren because <laughs> uh, I think Gene is tired. Um, the Man Trap. It. It's a hundred years old. It's a, well, it's a it's a long night. A desert trek story taking members of our band from one point on a planet to another. But what appears to be a pleasant, totally Earth-like and harmless world rapidly develops into a hundred miles of fear and suspicions as Captain April and crew begin to encounter strange apparitions. Actually, more than apparitions, these are wish fulfillment traps, which become as real as flesh and blood. Whatever a man wants most will appear before him. For example, water, food, a female, a long dead parent, gold, or even a way to power. A long dead female parent. That's right. The traps become increasingly subtle to the point where our crew nearly destroys itself out of a total inability to separate the reality they must have from the apparitions which will destroy them. So it's interesting. I mean, it, it, it has the title The Man Trap, but it basically sounds like shore leave. It does. Yeah, it yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. It's also you know, a little also, bit the cage, honestly. Yeah, a little which bit. Is like, Absolutely. There's a, I, I think, you know, as, as much as, um, this is something I actually kind of thought about during the, 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 the top of this thing, when we were talking about the episodes that he initially pitched out, that there was a lot of ideas that felt like Westerns, you know, we were right. saying. And it's like, and I think that was to make it feel familiar to the, uh, to the, to the network. But there's a lot of stuff that I think that Gene pulls from things like the Odyssey, right? It's like, mm -hmm. this is very clearly the Lotus Absolutely. Eaters. Absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. And it just, yeah, it's that's just- That's a great point. You know, I just, I just find that fascinating. It's just, there's things that he likes to come back to again and again it's like just to kind of subject you know the 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 uh the recurring like story themes and motifs with rodberry not just in star trek but you know the other shows that he tried to bring along and just kind of trace that back it's just it's just yeah, like genesis in, 2 and planet earth yeah, yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah well look and you look and you see star trek the motion picture you know, really has its roots in, in Genesis 2 and Robots Return. And, and one of the things that's fascinating about this list is when Star Trek was canceled and Paramount was um, considering doing a low-budget Star Trek movie that was being championed by Herb Solo, um, uh, uh, it was going to be like a 2 or $3 million Star Trek movie in the early 70s. Gene pitched uh, a, a movie which has its roots in one of these original ideas from 1964, and I'm going to read that. This was this was um, the movie that he he pitched to Paramount that was rejected. It's and, and he later claimed was because they wouldn't pay his quote his 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 rate for the script. 
and and Herb Herb backs it up. He says, you know, Gene wanted too much money in the studio, wasn't going to pay it. But the, the pitch is this: a question of cannibalism. Visiting the Earth colony of Regulus, April's sortie party became aware that cow-like creatures raised on the ranches there are actually intelligent beings. But the colonists who have built their empire largely on the supply and sale of this meat rebel at the attempt to free their cattle. Now, you, you know, I always laughed at this as a, a proposal for a Star Trek movie, right? Then you, you realize know, the it was Star Trek to... Insurrection. But, but, but actually, if you look at this as an episode, I mean, it was so ahead of its time to pitch this in 1964 and basically deal with, uh, 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 you know, vegetarianism and, you know, sentient, uh, you know, how sentient, you know, the pain that we cause animals and, 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 and you know, and, 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 and eating meat and all that kind of stuff. It's a really interesting, you know, look, it's fairly on the nose, but it, at the same time, uh, I think it would have made a much more interesting episode than say, let that be your last battlefield. Um, but I, I just find it fascinating that, it, you know, as early as 1964, this was something that he was toying with. Um, and I, you know, I hadn't realized that until I looked at this document. This episode brought to you. <laughs> yeah, but beyond meat. <laughs> Impossible exactly. burger. Um, but that wasn't my pick. I'll tell you what my, my pick was for, uh, you know. <laughs> what the I, hell is this? Can't do that. <laughs> is it Thursday already? <laughs> oh no! I got! I got! I got! I got to read you! I got to read you my 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 pick. Ashley hasn't even picked one. He did. He, oh he no! Did. I'm sorry, Ashley. Go ahead, Ashley. You're absolutely right. Darren picked on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> he he picked the man trap. Ashley, now on Wednesday, you get to pick your pick. It's, well, I would love to make a pick, guys, but I didn't get the document. What? This is what you get from missing staff meetings. Dude, we set this out weeks ago. We said we're going to do this episode to take your time to look at the document and and be familiar with it so we can do an in-depth, deep dive and not do it off the top of our heads. Okay, I'm going to pick pick Ashley's pick then. Ready? Here we go. Okay, this is Ashley's pick. Mr. Socrates, the most unusual world in the universe a society secretly in a telepathic contact with the earth for centuries, selecting and duplicating an intelligent life-like form. The most unusual intelligences, intellects produced in mankind's history. On a single street, one night meet such people as Julius Caesar, Napoleon, Florence Nightingale, Genghis Khan, Thomas Jefferson, Carrie Nation, and Adolf Hitler. What at first seems like pure fantasy to the Star Trek principles suddenly becomes a very real and very deadly game as they begin to realize this is a form of Roman Colosseum, that the participants are all gladiators. The the stakes are life and death, and the games are about to begin. They're all episodes. They're all They're all mathletes. That's great. I love that. Yeah, it's, it's basically who owns Fred Anias in the Savage Curtain. Yeah. yeah, 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 but 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 that, that's you know whatever. Um, so now so I'm gonna have my pick. You know, that is a really good Wednesday pick. Wait, would someone go next? I know. And see what the hell Mr. Hitler is doing? <laughs> it's like this, this awful retirement community. It's actually a pretty good setup for a for a pilot, honestly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah all these people are living in a retirement community. <laughs> Wow. Would you please shut up, Socrates? Stop with the toga parties. I drink what? 
<laughs> oh, is that Carry Nation? Oh, okay. Uh, so that was um, what's your was Ashley's? How do you, uh, you vote, vote, Mark A. Altman? Um, okay. So that was that was Ashley's pick. Yeah. So now my pick is uh, never got this. Pork, the first major menace to Earth, an alien intelligence claiming to be pure thought and no body, which devours intelligence, leaving behind a helpless idiot, much like. (laughs) (laughs) I am (laughs) Pork. Near starvation for 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 eons. It has been frantically seeking precisely the type of food the Earth could supply in quantity. Dun, 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 dun. I'm sorry, that sounds terrible. I know, that's why I picked it. <laughs> it really sounds terrible. Why, should it I pick like Kentucky, Wednesday. Kentucky? No, you, you shouldn't pick anymore. You've had you've okay. had three picks, Mark. Three. <laughs> I, I lost count, sorry. No, no Camelot Revisited? You know, people are going to be, be asking... No, what I was going to say is that, to be honest, most of these log lines are not very good. Yeah, I know. They're, they're mixed Sometimes. up, and, and they, they don't have any, any sort of direction to them. They're all... To be fair, most pitch decks usually are that way. That's right. You know, if you're, where you have, like, you know, some episodes could include, and you do the bullets. Sure. You generally no, never make all, them, because you don't have the benefit of a room. Yeah. But there's something that you eventually, in some way, pull out and use. Right. There's like a good idea. There's a nugget in there, but you just kind of have to flood but the zone. To be honest, with at least four or five of these are the crew dealing with uh, illusion in some form. Illusion, Michael. The, the, oh, the sorry. power of illusion. Um, <laughs> because it's, and it's, it's, it's really illusion. interesting uh, because. Look, honestly, I think Roddenberry was counting on the fact that the uh, uh, network heads don't read, and uh, they would they would you know make a cursory appraisal of this at best. Yeah, that's right. They just need to see there's a wall of text. Yep, that's it. They they just need to see that you actually did some work. Yep, yep. No, it's 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 true. I, I, it's amazing how much the later Star Trek Bible in 67 changed from the original mm-hmm. Bible. But, I, you know, we're not going to talk about that today because not this, um, not, not this week. But, um, you know, it really it, but it's just as gonzo in retrospect when you look at the descriptions of the character. This is once the show was already in production. And uh, I love the way it quizzes the um the prospective writers about you know their thoughts about science fiction and whether or not they're qualified to uh, write yeah, science well that, fiction. Yeah, that's what the regular writer's guide does. Yeah, but yeah. we should actually um, Star Trek is a new kind of television science fiction with all the advantages of an anthology, but none of the limitations. But we're that gonna have to true. make sure Ashley actually reads it before we have we yes. do that episode. <laughs> you know, well, I happen to have that one. Now, will oh, you that- have that one? Will that yeah. be next week, or is that going to be later on in the season? Have no, we that'll be coming on later on on the season because okay. I don't think we, I don't think we should um, we should do these every week. We I shouldn't think we should come back the to this thing. Yes. No. No. We'll, we'll come, come back. back We're going to this be... planet again. Once right. I mean, we it's, have a it's lot the of season long episodes. arc. It's a season long arc, but then there'll be standalone episodes like the best Star Trek movies that aren't Star Trek movies. We're going to do that episode finally. Right. Um, 
we, we're going to do, uh, we're going to obviously go back and interview people. Uh, we're going to go back to doing, you know, interviews. Some of our, our best episodes have been interviews with people involved in the various Star Trek series. We're going to go back and do that. And of course, we're going to continue to do great um, audio commentaries on an entirely separate podcast called Trexpert's Briefing Room. And if you haven't already listened to uh, Peter and Lisa uh, this week talking to um, Denise Crosby, that was a terrific that was episode. Last week. I'm, I'm yeah, I know, but no, actually, technically, if you're listening to this Friday, um, Trexpert's Briefing Room debuts on Saturday, so they would it would still be the episode that is on. Well, let's so not try and you, confuse you, people. You anymore. messed up my art. I had a whole polished thing. Yes, and then you you had a you blew it all up. That's my you job. Blew it all up. You blew it. You, you know, it. Mark, you are good enough to recover, and, and um, not call attention to it at all. That's right, and bring it home. I'm just, I just wanted to pay a compliment to Peter and Lisa, who I think, Absolutely. I think did a really great episode with Denise Crosby. I, I found it really interesting. Uh, you know, Skinny Evil, you know, uh, basically when, when they came to Skinny us and evil. Said, you know, Denise is, is in, um, what episode do you want her to do? I said, Skin of Evil. So um, I'm so glad that they did such an interesting job and she had so much you know, that was uh, interesting. And she really goes into great depth that I've never heard her talk about, about why she left the show. It's really fascinating. I mean, it wasn't like this perfunctory answer. I mean, she went in, she goes on for like 10 minutes talking about why she left Next Generation. I, I, I think it's a, re- I, I really thought they did a great job. I'm really, I encourage you, if you're fans of this podcast and interested in Next Are Generation, you? to check out the Trexpert's Briefing Room. And of course, there'll be a, an all new commentary with the three of us talking about the Deep Space Nine episode, our man Bashir. So if you're a Bond fan and a Bashir fan and a Deep Space Nine fan, you want to check out that episode on Trexpert's Briefing Room. An entirely different podcast from Inglorious Trexpert's. <laughs> uh, you know why I say that? Because people are confused. Sometimes confused. people get confused. They think that it's like some kind of some part of this show. Which is, is not brand confusion. Is that the problem? I think there's brand confusion. Well, brand well, confusion. When we started the when we started the Trexpert's briefing room, we did put it in this feed for a couple times, just to as get bonus episodes as bonus episodes to get people listening and uh, get their interest in. So uh, obviously that happened, but they didn't realize that it had in fact gone off in another direction. And because uh, we wanted them to subscribe that. to that feed. Yeah. So, you know, you basically, we, we promote it. It's like, you know, when you spin off a show, it's like you spin off Deep Space Nine from Next Generation. Right. You show Deep Space you Nine Captain after Picard Next Gen. Show up. You have Captain Picard show up on Deep Space Nine and say, exactly. oh, the marvelous place. Uh, good luck with your series. And then he leaves. Go with God. Good luck. Phasers <laughs> <laughs> on stun. And, and exactly. And then you leave the show alone to its own devices. Right. So there you have it. Well, look, I think this was so interesting to look at the what ifs, what could have been, what should have. And also what show, what Star Trek podcast has such great guests as us. I mean, to have Gene Roddenberry at 100 years old look. come and drop by and talk <laughs> about the cage with us for for, Mark, for, you're, for an- you're unfair to our listeners. I mean. Obviously, Gene Roddenberry is too old to join us on this. So I, we, we just had him call in. Well, the best part about that is that not only did we get Gene Roddenberry, if anybody here is, and I know somebody here has, if any, any of the listeners have watched the Counterclock incident, 
then they have heard the voice of Robert April on this podcast uh, with Gene Roddenberry talking. Because as it turns out, Gene Roddenberry played Robert April. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, no, I know that Jimmy Dewan did, but he was doing a Gene Roddenberry imitation. He was very clearly doing a Gene Roddenberry imitation when he was playing Robert April. Can I just explain the Trexpert's Briefing Room is an entirely other <laughs> podcast. Entirely. So we can listen to that voice. He sounds we like, could, um, yes, did I say that? Yes, yes, I did. We, we, when are we going to do counter You probably just sounded so much like Jimmy Dewan that I didn't notice. <laughs> yeah there you go just go back and just go the oh. man of a thousand voices, voices. <laughs> all slightly like jimmy doom all slightly like yes exactly. the man of a thousand variations on jimmy doing jimmy doing thank you sir <laughs> that was an excellent imitation of jimmy doing doing an imitation of somebody random that was that was that was Mr. Eric's. That wasn't somebody random, Mr. Miller. Yeah, let me talk. Uh, you know, Mr. Eric's is probably one of the most important characters in the history of Star Trek. And one day he will make his triumphant return. That's correct. Yes, I, 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 I'm, I, <laughs> his voice by Darren Doctorman. <laughs> and I don't care if MRS comes back, but we got to see Eric's. Because MRS was like a bad Ohura substitute, but Mr. Arix, he was great. You know, I, I always said, I said after after the tragedy of Anton Yelchin's passing, mm -hmm. that if they were going to, you know, you don't want to recast Chekhov. It's no, time for Mr. Arix in the Calvin universe. Yeah. No. That'd be you awesome. Put your, put your money where your uh, limbs are. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> anyway. lost an arm and a limb. So anyway, um, this was the fourth season premiere. Um, we're going to be doing more of these episodes where we dive into the um, the the Bibles and some of the documents from the um, uh, various Star Trek series. Um, if you're a fan of the show, you can rate us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, you can watch us on the Electric Now app. Download that for free. And uh, I want to point out the the new fall lineup here at Electric Surge. Mondays, it's best movies never made. Thursday. It's an all-new day and time for the 4.30 movie coming back in October. Fridays, it's Inglorious Trexperts. Saturday mornings, it's Cartoon Barroom with Ashley and Steve. Saturday night, it's the Bay City Rollers and the Trexperts Briefing Room. And all different podcasts from Inglorious Trexperts. And exclusively on the Electric Now app, Leverage After Show. Check that out. Um, on the Electric Now video app, um, which is uh, just chock full of great content. So if you haven't already had a chance to download it, do it today. Do and it. And if you want to do it, I said I'd kill you last, Sully. And, um, and if, if you're, uh, you want to follow us on social, there's a lot of cool bonus content. Maybe we'll be putting up uh, some excerpts from these documents. You can follow us on Twitter at Inglorious Trek or Instagram on Inglorious Trexperts or Facebook at Inglorious Trexperts. So there's a lot of ways to stay in touch with your Trek fix here at Trexperts. That's a and that's a good name for another podcast. Trek, Trek fix. Trek fix. Trek fix. That's what I want to do. A third freaking podcast. Yeah. Is that part of a glorious Trexperts? No. What do you mean? That's different. a whole different podcast. Is <laughs> yeah. it on Netflix? In um, fact, we recommend you don't <laughs> listen to it. It's so different. Um, yeah, let's 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 do another podcast. That's a great idea. Um <laughs> 
Um, but but in all seriousness, we're, we're glad you're sticking it out. You're still with us here on our fourth season debut. Um, there's going to be some exciting announcements regarding uh, some uh, appearances that Darren and I are going to be doing, some Star Trek-related appearances coming up. And uh, we hope you all had a great uh, uh, Star Trek day. We just celebrated the anniversary of the uh, airing of The Man Trap on NBC. Um, 55 I, years ago. Yeah, 55 years ago. Can you believe it? Crazy. That's extraordinary. I can't even remember. Oh, that's right. I wasn't alive. But well, neither, still neither, pretty not, cool. None of, us, none of us were. None of us were alive. But I mean, it's still no amazing one, that it was 55 no years. No one here was alive. How old do you think we are? <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, it, it's amazing that that uh, it's 55 years since that uh, since the show debuted, and um, it's exciting that here we are. We're still we're still talking about it, and um, obviously a lot of what Gene created uh, back in 1964 uh, in this document. Uh, uh, hopefully, it'll find its way somehow into. Uh, as the new series go forward with Strange to World. So um, on behalf of uh, newly minted Trexpert, Ashley Edward Miller, Yo. Darren Docterman, a very special thanks to our sound engineer, uh, the great Bill Ritter, tip of the hat. Because um, they did have hats in the cage, didn't they? They sure did. Yeah, so a tip of the hat to uh, the great Bill Ritter, who continues to make us sound so great on Zoom, even after what seems like an eternity. And of course, uh, uh, we want to thank Peter Holmstrom and Zach Raggetts, our associate producers, who do such great research and, and uh, help uh, with the audio assets for the broadcast, as well as our producer, Natalie Miscali. Um, and uh, on behalf of all of us, until next week, keep on trekking and gloriously, of course. You're listening to the Electric Surge Network.